Um, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we heard the story about Michael Morton. Uh, he was the guy who was, was wrongfully convicted of murder back in the 80s. And as you may remember, he was eventually uh, exonerated, but needless to say, he paid a high price for those um, years in prison uh, for his wrongful conviction. You know, not only did he lose 26 years of his life, but he also lost uh, a relationship during that time with his son, who had believed the worst about him, that he had murdered his mother. You know, his son grew up thinking that his dad had, had, um, had done this terrible thing, and he, had, he wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, never visited him in, in prison. He lost most of his friends. Um, most everybody turned against him. Um, particularly his in-laws. About the only people that stood by him were his parents and, you know, some friends from church. You know, and the story kind of, I guess if you could say it, ended well. Um, it ended well. He was exonerated. But for many years, Michael was in prison not just by the, the prison walls. He was imprisoned really by the pain of knowing that his son believed the worst about him, that, uh, that he had believe, believed that he had done this, you know, this terrible thing. Later on, I want to tell you about um, another man who was wrongfully con convicted and was also exonerated, but you know, there's a story there, there's a connection there that I think um, applies to us in a, in a unique way. Um, well, this is week four of this series called Finding Freedom. And it's, a, it's about breaking away from the chains of the things that, that bind us, you know, the things that hold us back, the things that keep us from being the people that God wants us, us to be, and to, to kind of um, uh, keep us from, from creating that lasting change that we want to see in our lives. In previous weeks, it was mentioned that um, in Jesus' first sermon, he announced why he had come. And... Uh, it was the scroll of Isaiah that he was reading, but it's, it's um, mentioned in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And he said, He sent me to proclaim freedom for, prisoner, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So this promise is ours to claim. It's something that um, is not just for when Jesus came initially, not just for the people that were listening to his first sermon, this is, the, this is a promise for, for each of us. Jesus wants to set us free. So today I want to talk about breaking free from the shackles of um, the opinions of others. Breaking free from the need for approval. You know, what will people say? What will people think? Um, how do people's opinions impact the way that I think and the things that I do, the things that I say? You know, when we look at the Apostle Paul today, um, you know, we, we see him as this um, incredible biblical figure that wrote two-thirds of the, the New Testament. You know, we recognize that he has this authority from God. You know, we recognize that when he was writing those letters to the churches, that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the, the Holy Spirit was guiding, you know, his pen, and he was writing scripture. You know, we understand that today. And, you know, because of that, we consider him, you know, he's, he's called St. Paul. And he's one of, considered one of the greatest 
figures in, in biblical history. But in the first century, though, it was very different. Um, there was a lot of opposition uh, to what Paul was saying. You know, his, his message was far from unanimous. You know, in fact, many people, there were Christians and non-Christians alike, um, that were directly opposed to him. You know, they, they thought he was teaching a false, a false gospel, a, an easy gospel. They thought he was anti-law or anti-Judaism or anti-Old Testament. And so when, when he was put in jail, there were people, there were Christians at that time that, that celebrated that because they thought that he was, he was this false teacher. But Paul recognized early in his ministry that it really wasn't a popularity contest uh, because if it was, he wouldn't be doing what he was doing. You know, he, he certainly wouldn't win the popularity contest. In his final letter um, that was written from prison to his friend Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, he wrote this. He said, at my, defense, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. So he also talks a little bit about, you know, some of the, the people that were opposed to him during that time. You know, he was all but alone. Um, there, was, there was no one that, that stood up with him during that time. But yet that final letter was, it's a letter of, of victory. It's a letter of um, an accomplished life for, for God. And it's because early in his ministry, he was able to do that because Paul had decided early on that there would be this defining principle that would guide his life all the way to the, to the finish line. And it was something that he said in the book of Galatians. It was one of the first letters that he wrote. In Galatians 1.10, he said, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So it was, this, um, it was this determination to please God and no one else that really fueled his ministry, that fueled his ability to deal with all the setbacks, all the adversities, all the opposition in those you know, 30-something years that he was, um, he was following Christ. And you know, it's, it's a question that I'm sure he asked himself time and time again. Am I, pleasing, am I here to please men or am I here to please God? And really, you know, in, in terms of how that applies to us with this whole issue of, of um, being shackled to the opinions of others, as long as we're a slave to what others think, um, we're truly a slave. And we're not going to be free to be the kind of person that God wants us to be. I like what Eleanor Roosevelt once said. She said, what you think of me is none of my business. I thought it was kind of interesting. In other words, don't allow your life to be limited by what other people think. But easier said than done, right? God's promise is that we can find freedom. Jesus came to release the captives, to set the prisoners free, and those prisoners can be us when we are shackled to, um, to the opinions of others. So if you find yourself, you know, that in that situation where you're trapped or held back by the things that, um, by other people, by the, the, um, 
things that other people say, the things that other people do, or even our assumption of what people might think or do. Today, Jesus can set us free. And it really comes down to getting the, past the need for approval. I mean, it's a difficult thing in our society. Have you ever noticed how many times that we're held back from living life to the full because of, of our concerns about what other people might think or do, you know, the response of, of other people? And this is really an undue influence. Now, that's kind of the, the title of today's message, Undue Influences. And, you know, there's, there's an undue influence that we allow into our lives when other people's thoughts or reactions hold us back. And so today we're going to kind of consider several ways of how we can kind of break free from that in some specific areas, um, some specific areas that we um, can strengthen to, um, to really combat that. So first of all, we need to become immune to criticism. So you probably heard the saying that the only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing and say nothing and, and be nothing. You know, everyone else is going to get criticized at some point for something. And let's face it, a lot of that criticism is unfair. Um, a few years ago, when the Seattle Seahawks were, uh, were one yard and about a minute away from winning the Super Bowl, um, they had an opportunity to run the ball, which would have been the obvious choice. But instead, the coach, Pete Carroll, called pass play, and it was intercepted at the goal line. And if you're a big football fan, you probably remember that, um, you know, that decision, that, that play. The Seahawks lost. The Patriots won. Ooh. <laughs> and and all, the, all the pundits and the arm, armchair critics just ripped Pete Carroll to shreds. They called it, one of them called it the worst call in Super Bowl history. And whether they were fans of Seattle or New England, it really didn't matter. They, there was one thing that all the critics had in common. They weren't in the game. They weren't part of the decision-making process. You know, but they were absolutely positive that they could have done a better job. And that's what critics do. They're not, they're not participants. Um, they're not doers. They're watchers. You know, they don't have skin in the game. They just sit back in the stands or on the couch and they criticize. Uh, it's kind of the easiest thing in the world. And you can see the same story in, uh, or same situation, the story of um, David and Goliath. You may remember that Goliath was standing before the Israelite army and he was taunting them day in and day out. You know, come fight me, come fight me. And nobody had the courage to step out and do it until David shows up, this teenager shows up, and he says, you know, who is this Philistine that's mocking God's army? Let me fight him. And his brother, of all people, I guess maybe that isn't surprising, he asked David, in effect, you know, who do you think you are? In 1 Samuel 17, he said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those sheep, those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So what did David do? He could have kind of thought to himself, well, maybe he's right, you know. Maybe my heart isn't pure about this. Um, maybe I'm no match for this job. 
Maybe I'll just turn around and go home. But he didn't. Instead, he picked up five small stones and he waded into the battle. So David's brother, you know, he's a perfect prototype of the critic. And it's something that's been duplicated again and again for thousands of years. He himself wasn't brave enough to participate, to, to go into the battle. But that didn't stop him from criticizing other people that did. Other people that felt like they wanted to make a difference. So here's what I'm saying. Don't let the, the critical opinions of others hold you back. See the critics for what they often are, which is just petty spectators. You know, you, may not, you might not slay every Goliath that you come up against, but that doesn't matter. It's the, what matters is that you're in the battle, you're in the fight, which is more than most critics can say. So having said that, you know, it's important that we ask the Lord um, to give us discernment in those situations when we get criticized because there are situations where God will use somebody to show us blind spots. You know, we all have blind spots, and by definition, we can't see the blind spot. And so sometimes the Lord will use other people to help us see that. And so, you know, we can't just dismiss all criticism or all um, attempts at, at trying to um, help us change because there may be some valid situations where God is bringing somebody into our life to help us change. But you can usually tell the difference between a critic and somebody who really wants to, has a heart to help. You know, one's going to tear down, the other's going to build up. As um, Proverbs 18 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And so when we see somebody that's speaking to us with life, with a desire to help us and a desire to come alongside us, that's something that we should take notice of and ask God, you know, is, is there some blind spots here? But oftentimes when somebody is critical and wants to tear down, you know, we can see that for what it is, just a critical spirit. And, you know, I mean, most people don't want to be around people that have critical spirits um, because it's not life-giving. It's, it's not something that builds us up. I love what Winston Churchill once said. He said, um, so long as I'm acting from duty and conviction, I'm indifferent to taunts and jeers. And he got, he got a bunch. I think they will probably do me more good than harm. So let that be our attitude. You know, learn to be able to become immune from unfair criticism. So secondly, if we want to overcome the undue influence of others, we need to do away with comparisons. This is, a, this is a biggie in our culture. You know, comparing ourselves to others often leads to, to envy, which has been defined as the art of counting the other person's blessings instead of our own. Recently, I heard about a woman named uh, when Carolyn that um, she found it difficult to attend her high school reunion. She had served in the mission field in Indonesia, and um, most of the last decade was doing work for God. You know, she had um, abandoned the kind of the trappings of um, uh, 
of materialism and um, didn't have much in the way of possessions or money. She, was, she believed that she was doing you know, important work for God, and she was. But when she met up her, with her old friends from school, these, these feelings started to kind of well up inside her, came to the surface. She began to almost feel ashamed of who she was and what, he had done, what she had done with her life. You know, she uh, saw all these other friends that were, you know, they had gotten married and starting to have kids, and they were getting at the stage of life when um, they were starting to get a better income and money was starting to come in. They pulled up in their brand new SUVs, and um, they talked about their building their dream home and taking their trips to Europe and all that, and, and suddenly she felt inadequate. She felt like... Um, almost like she had wasted her life. You know, the more she heard, the more ashamed she felt inside. She was ashamed for the decisions that she had made. Um, she wasn't married. She didn't have kids. She had no money. She, um, you know, had no status in life. You know, her, her job had been her life. You know, her, her missionary work, that was her life. And she just often didn't see the results that she wanted to see where she was. And for the first time in her life, she kind of started to feel uh, ashamed to be a Christian, to, to have given her life for, for that. And it kind of, you know, for a few days, she was in this kind of sullen mood. But then suddenly the words of Paul came back to her. And it, <clears throat> it was that same, it was that same uh, passage that we talked about earlier, but there's another passage that... Um, that King Solomon used in Proverbs that I think is, is really relevant here. And it's in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. And it's very simple. It says, envy rots the bones. You know, there is nothing, there's nothing productive that, that happens when we look at other people's stuff, their position in life, their talents, their abilities, and wish that we had that. Because... God has made us exactly who we are. He's given us the personalities, the talents, the abilities, and the, the position in life to serve him. And everybody's different. Every, everybody's in a different place. But in that moment of clarity, she remembered those words of Paul that we talked about earlier in Galatians when he said, am I now trying to win the approval of human, being, human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So nothing good can really come from comparing ourselves to others. You know, it'll work against us either way. If we're better off than somebody else, then we can start to develop the sin of pride. If somebody else is better off than we are, then we can have these feelings of shame and, and envy that, uh, that start to, to come up. So in essence, that you know, comparing ourselves to others allows other people to define our values, and you know, our consumer culture does that all the time. I mean, it it thrives on setting up discontent and envy and comparisons constantly. I mean, that's what most commercials do. Um, they tell you that you know you're not um, you're not complete until you have this product or this service or whatever. But have you noticed that social media can do that as well? I once, um, 
I once heard this interview with a woman that um, admitted that she took over a thousand selfies to be able to post just a few pictures on Facebook each day so that she would get the very perfect picture to be able to post on Facebook. And you know, a lot of times we make assumptions when we see the postings on Facebook, we make assumptions about other people's lives based on what they post that probably, in many cases, is far from accurate. We don't see the relationships. We don't see deep down into what's going on in their lives. All we see is the picture and the words that are, that are listed. And so a lot of times, you know, we can, we can look at that and, and feel like we're inadequate, like um, we don't measure up, like, man, they've got all this nice stuff, they've got this perfect family and everything else, but oftentimes we don't see the reality. We see the reality that somebody else wants to present, but that may not be the actual reality. So we have to really decide once for all, you know, they're on their journey and we're on ours. You know, if their success brings them happiness, it brings them blessing, um, we shouldn't hold that against them. In fact, Paul talked about in, in uh, Romans chapter 12, he said, rejoice with those who rejoice. So just because we see somebody receiving blessings that we're not receiving, doesn't mean that God has abandoned us, doesn't mean that God is shortchanging us, because each one of us has um, a very specific part in God's overall, in, in his plan, in his purpose. And so there will be differences in terms of, of the talents, the abilities, the blessings uh, that we get, but it, it may be something that happens at different stages for different people. And so um, we just have to learn to trust God that he knows what he's doing and that he is going to bring to fruition the things in our life in his perfect timing. There was a similar thing that kind of happened with the um, disciples in the, in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember, they, they started arguing with each other about who was the greatest, and Jesus overheard them and kind of called them out on it. And so he said to them, in effect, you know, look, if you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. You've got to focus on serving others rather than focusing on yourself. And his, his exact words were in, um, in Mark chapter 9, where he said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So if you want to get past the need for approval, stop comparing yourself with others and, and turn to the Lord and focus on the blessings that he's given you in your life and not the blessings that he might have given somebody in their lives. And focus on serving the people that he's, he's put in our lives to serve. That's ultimately what, what's going to bring us the, the true peace and contentment. So thirdly, to escape the undue influence of others, we need to be willing to grant others clemency. So clemency is... Um, it's a word we're used to hearing in connection with the legal system, but it's really just another word for forgiveness. It's used here because it starts with a C and everything else started with a C. So. But it also kind of fits the wrongly convicted theme as well. Um, and this is different than, than mere, being merely worried about what others think. I mean, oftentimes this involves some real hurt, 
some real pain in our lives. Um, you know, things that, that really become an attack, things that have um, maybe even been something like abuse. An example is, um, is Michael Morton, who we were talking about earlier. So he was put in prison by this corrupt prosecutor, um, who, by the way, is no longer um, a prosecutor, fortunately. Michael said that um, in the early years of his incarceration, he spent a lot of time thinking about how he's going to get revenge on the people that put him in prison. But then he had a personal encounter with Jesus, and his life radically changed. He ended up forgiving everybody that had ever had caused him harm, that had been part of that process to, um, to put him in prison. Um, he forgave everybody that had turned against him and wouldn't talk to him, wouldn't visit him. He forgave everybody. He granted them all clemency. He understood, I think, um, something that uh, Corey Tenboom, Kent Tenboom had once said. Um, she herself was, uh, was wrongly convicted, put in prison by the Nazi regime for helping Jews escape Nazi Germany during World War II. And she watched most of her family die in concentration camps. But then later in life, she said, forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and realize the prisoner was you. If we're hanging on to the hurts that we've experienced in life at the hand of somebody else, that person still has power over us, and we're still in chains. The only way out of that is forgiveness. That's the only way to grant them clemency. And when we do, the prisoner that gets set free is not them. You know, oftentimes we kind of feel like if we withhold forgiveness, we're kind of punishing them. Sometimes they might not even know that they offended us. But even if they did, and even if they're um, unwilling to acknowledge the hurt and the pain that they've caused, if we're holding on to unforgiveness, it doesn't hurt them, it hurts us. We're the ones that get set free when we forgive. And that's why Paul said in Colossians 3, he said, forgive anyone who does you wrong, just as Christ has forgiven you. And that's the, that's the only way that we can really forgive the truly painful hurts in our lives is to see that God forgave us first. We can't really live our lives expecting grace from God and giving judgment to others or unforgiveness to others. Scripture says that, um, you know, if Jesus said, if we don't forgive our brother, then we can't expect forgiveness from God. And oftentimes we, we walk around holding on to those hurts, expecting that we're going to get grace from God when we're not given it to somebody else. And so it's only the cross that gives us the power and the ability to let go of that and to give God the opportunity to change our hearts. So earlier I mentioned that um, I tell another story of a, a man who was wrongly convicted. And his name was, uh, was Robert Davis. He lives in Virginia. And when he was 18, he was convicted of a brutal double murder that he didn't commit. 
And then after 13 years in prison through the tireless work of his attorney, he was given a pardon by the governor and was released. So in the past 25 years, there are more than 2,000 people that have been exonerated from serious crimes. So his story isn't, you know, that unique, but there's one aspect of his story that really puts him in the minority. Robert Davis confessed to the crime. He didn't do it, and there was ample evidence that, shows, that showed that he wasn't involved. But after the police identified him as a sub suspect and arrested him, they got a confession from him. So how did they do that? Well, one reason was that Mr. Davis was, he was slightly learning disabled and somewhat easily suggestible. But another reason that the officer interrog who interrogated, interrogated him didn't just ask him questions. Um, you know, he pressured him for hours on end. He kind of browbeat him. He, he threatened um, his family with a, uh, to, to put his mother in prison as an accomplice. He um, um, denied him medication, denied him sleep. Um, he just put the pressure on until finally Mr. Davis confessed. And he, you know, the, the interrogator actually ended up putting the words in his mouth of the confession. Now I should preface this by saying, you know, the vast majority of law enforcement officers are dedicated professionals, but this was one rogue detective that did things the wrong way and pressured a young kid to giving a confession and sent him to prison. Unfortunately, the, um, there's an organization called the Innocent Pro Innocence Project that, um, that does uh, spend resources and time um, trying to help exonerate uh, people that are wrongly convicted and accused. And they took up his case and worked with his attorney for a number of years. And finally, we were able to exonerate him. But, you know, people often ask, well, how could he have confessed to a crime that he didn't commit? And I think the answer is that some people can get so beaten down by the process, so overwhelmed emotionally and physically, that they'll say anything to get it to end, even as far as a admitting to something that they didn't do, giving a false confession. You know, but false confessions aren't only found in interrogation rooms. Uh, there are other places where false confessions uh, happen. In fact, they happen every day. They happen when we believe the things that other people say and do to us. We end up falsely confessing things that aren't true about ourselves. We believe things that aren't true about ourselves. You know, sometimes we get so beaten down, so manipulated and coerced that we end up saying that, well, you know, the critics, they must be right. I'm no good. I'm a failure. I can't measure up to other people that I see around me 
I'm never going to be able to get over the hurt and the pain that's happened in my life and be able to forgive others. God's done with me. The only safe thing for me is to say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. But that's false confession. That's a confession that can have a powerful impact in our life if we let it. Because if we continue to yield to fear of criticism or the emptiness of envy and comparisons or the bitterness of unforgiveness, we're always going to be a prisoner to the influence of others. But if you want to find freedom, you can learn to block that, that out of our lives and, and not listen to those coercive voices because they don't deserve the power that we sometimes give them. As, um, as Robert Davis was released, he was interviewed by the news media, and the reporter asked him about the wrongful conviction and about the, um, how he feels about the people that had put him there in prison. And Davis said that he holds no ill will toward anyone. He didn't want to be a bitter person he was just happy to be free. And in reality, that confession, that, that he didn't want to be a bitter person, that he forgave, that made him free in more than one way. Not just from the prison walls, but from the prison of his own mind, had he held on to that forgiveness. And that's the response that you and I are challenged with when we have situations like unfair criticism, or seeing people around us that maybe are better off than we are, or have more talents or abilities, or holding on to those hurts in our lives. You know, those are in undue influences, but we do have a choice. We can make the choice not to listen to those. We can make the choice to block those out. You know, we can say to the, uh, to the world around us, just like Eleanor Roosevelt did, what you think of me is none of my business. You know, because I'm, I'm seeking the, fa the favor, not of men, I'm seeking the favor of God. I'm not seeking to win the approval of others, I'm seeking to win the favor and the approval of the one who died for me. His is the only opinion that matters. And what might his opinion be? Well, the prophet Jeremiah once wrote that God loves us with an everlasting love. And he has drawn us with an unfailing kindness. He sent his son so that you and I could have a relationship with him for eternity. But beyond that, he sent his son to break the chains that bind us every day. Chains of sin, of shame, chains from hurts of the past, habits, addictions. He has sent his son to free us from all that, from the tyranny of that undue influence from others. So I would, 
I really encourage you, if, if any of those undue influences resonate with you, spend some time just talking to God about it. Spend some time in his word. Spend some time in prayer. Ask him to show you those areas and how to respond. He'll be faithful to reveal it to you. And I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but you know, if, if you've been dealing with those kind of undue influences in your life, I just want to pray real quick for, for you. Well, Father, I thank you that um, thank you that you have given us your son, Lord. Thank you that through his blood we have forgiveness of sin and we have the ability to be free, Lord. We don't need to, to worry about what others think about us, what others say about us, what others do to us. Lord, because we know that you love us with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms. We can trust in you and so, Lord, I just pray for, for each person here who might be struggling with some of those feelings, some of those issues, Lord, that you would just minister to them in a powerful way. Lord, give them hope. Give them a sense of freedom. Lord, show them step by step how to, how to deal with those feelings, those beliefs, and just to pour out their hearts before you, Lord. You're gracious and merciful to, to forgive us and to lead us on the path of truth and freedom. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If I could have the worship team to, to come back.